All right. Well, we are jumping in. Um, Revelation 20, uh, and we're just going to look at three verses today because I thought this would be definitely worth uh, time uh, looking at these three verses. And these are uh, not controversial, but just a, there's people that land uh, in mainly three different places when it comes to these verses. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about a premillennial and postmillennial and all millennial view of, of what the binding of Satan is. Um, but I'm gonna, we're, what we're going to do is kind of like what we've been doing with the rest of Revelation is, is looking at what does the word say, what, how does that fit into the context of the old and the new, and then, and then we're going to interpret it just like we've done everything else. And I feel like if you keep your same hermeneutic and you keep moving through Revelation, there's only one, one place to land uh, when it comes to what we're going to talk about today. Uh, but, but, and it's in the title. Uh, we're going to talk about the future binding of Satan, what that means in Revelation 20, 1 through 3. Uh, and I felt like in light of what Joel just said, I mean, this, is, th- this study was uh, exciting. It was neat. It was, it was good. I've never dug this out before. I mean, again, a lot of these things I, I, I understand. I know as I've read the word and I, I see how this fits in. And I, underst- I have an understanding of end times, eschatology, things like that. But as you have to dig through some of this, um, it is, it's always uh, uh, awesome to watch it click in to the rest of Scripture. Uh, but I felt like there, there was just a lot, there's a lot of joy in this. There's a lot of joy in everything we've been talking about. I mean, you know, even, even in the judge, even in Armageddon and the fall of Babylon and all that, uh, there's, there's joy in the sense of you're watching the world system fall, you're watching uh, the, the, the world that produces uh, evil and the persecution that's martyred all the saints, like be judged by the Lord. But in that also is a lot of, it ought to also strike some terror and fear in us as we see what Joel just talked about, the remaining sin that is in us and our fight against this world and those sort of things. It makes us want to flee the world, get out of the world, and, and those are good warnings. But now that that's done uh, and, and Christ has returned, the heavens have split open and he's come back, this, I just feel like from here on out it is just I mean, this is just that Jesus Christ is back on earth, and you're just going to watch as the millennial kingdom begins and then explodes into the, 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 the healing of the earth and his reign here on earth. Uh, there will be a final rebellion. We'll talk about that. But then you got after that the, the great white throne of judgment, the new heavens. The new I mean, this is some really exciting stuff that we're talking about. And so, anyway, as I was doing this study, like I said, I felt like that was one of the things. Uh, that came out was there's a lot of joy here. But this is uh, also some amazing stuff. And this is, uh, but what we're going to see today is the, the future binding of Satan, the judgment of Satan, um, and, uh, and the holding of Satan uh, for the millennial kingdom to happen. So let's jump in and read this together, and then we'll talk about it. So Revelation 20, verses 1 through 3 says this. It says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Like I said, there's not a lot of of content here. Three verses uh, pretty quick, and, and if you just read it, it's not complicated. If you let it, if you just read it, I mean, it, you, can, you can see what's going on here. An angel comes, grabs Satan, throws him to the abyss, uh, he shuts it, seals it over him, and, and, and while he's in there, he can't deceive the nations. At the end of the thousand years, he'll have to be released for one short period of time. I, don't, I mean, it's, it's straightforward reading. But like I said, Based on where you start with your hermeneutic or your theology, this becomes very confusing to a lot of people. But it's, I don't think it's going to be confusing. So we're going to let it read the way it reads. We're going to, it's going to fit right into everything we talked about. And, and we're in this chronological narrative of what happens at the end time. Uh, and I think it makes a lot of sense. If you weren't here, last couple of weeks we talked about the return of Jesus Christ, Revelation 19.11. He splits the heavens open. He returns. This is right after the, the marriage supper of the Lamb up in heaven. And uh, he comes uh, on a white horse. Uh, his name's faithful and true. He's the word of God. Uh, he's king of kings, Lord of lords. We've been talking about that. And it's been wonderful. 
And he comes with all the saints with him. They're all dressed in white, and they're coming to inherit the earth. They're coming to reign and to rule together with him. He's coming to take his rightful throne here on this planet. Uh, The earth has been prepared through the catastrophic destruction of God during the tribulation. For, you know, Mount Zion has risen. The other mountains have fallen. And Christ is coming uh, to take his throne. Um, And then we talked about last week... Uh, Armageddon, uh, you know, the, after the, the splitting of the heavens open, as John says, then he looked and he sees the false prophet, the Antichrist, and all the armies that have gathered outside of Jerusalem to fight from Megiddo down to Basra to fight against the people of God, against uh, the Lamb, against Jesus Christ. And we just talked about it. It was just a, a massive slaughter. I mean, it, you know, and we looked at, uh, we looked at um, Isaiah 63, uh, Isaiah 34, Joel 3, Ezekiel 38 and 39, Zechariah 14, and Zephaniah 1 to take that Old Testament prophecy of the same, uh, uh, the same battle, the same um, day, and try to get a, the best biblical understanding. And what it looks like is Christ returns, and then, you know, he, he takes a false prophet, Antichrist, casts him directly into the lake of fire, passing over the great white throne of judgment, um, and, uh, and then it's just uh, wiping out the armies. It just sounds like, it's just like I said, just uh, whether, whether they see anything, hear it, or what it is, it's just a, a bloodbath from the south all the way up to the north as he, as he destroys all those who have come to fight against him. And now, now he is going to turn, you could say, his face or his wrath towards the spiritual being that's behind it all. Satan, and that's what this is about today. So what we're going to look at today, three, three point, we're going to take these three verses and look at three things. We're going to talk about the place of Satan's binding, the person who is being bound, which is Satan, and, and uh, actually I changed that in my notes and forgot to do it on the slide, but we're going to talk about the purpose of the binding. Um, I, I was using the word precision to find another P word to describe the verbs going on there, but really there's a purpose statement built in that last verse, which is, I think, the, the most prominent part of it. So the place of the binding, the person person of the binding, and the purpose of the binding. So the first thing we're going to look at in Revelation 20, in in verse 1, is the place of the binding. The place of the binding. It says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. So before Jesus Christ can reign on earth as king, before he can fulfill the Davidic and Abrahamic covenant and the new covenant and all the things that he has promised both to Israel and, and, uh, and to all of his people, uh, he must rid the world of its current ruler, who is Satan. Uh, Henry Morris says in his commentary, hey, by the way, I, I threw this in there too to remind you. Uh, I, I told you I'd do this on the first week I did it, but then I've forgotten. But here's different things that I was reading this week that I felt like are very good. Uh, if you want further reading on some of this stuff, uh, there's some books over here. Robert Thomas's commentary and Henry Morris's commentary are excellent. They're right there. Um, also, um, Michael Vlock has a book called He Will Reign, and it takes the, the, the whole story of the kingdom from Genesis all the way through Revelation, just shows how this is the theme of all scripture uh, and how this is a piece of it. Um, and then uh, Matt Waymeyers has a couple of books over there, too, one specifically about Revelation 20, um, and, uh, and then another one on uh, the amillennialism. He wrote a book on amillennialism and, and their understanding of uh, the millennial kingdom and all that, and then and then from a, a premillennialist viewpoint, it uh, just shows how if you stick with the same hermeneutic, there's a lot of things uh, that don't line up with the amillennialist view. So all that being said, there's just some really good stuff over there, and they say things much better than me and much more in-depth and have a lot of scriptural backing. So those are just good resources if you want to take a look or, um, uh, or get one, buy one for yourself. So Henry Moore says, though, God is somehow going to revitalize this tired old planet and make it ready for the glorious kingdom of Christ on earth. In order to do this, the God of this present age, the old dragon, Satan, must be completely restrained from continuing his nefarious and baleful influence over the earth. He must be bound, and then the dominion uh, usurped by him can be unbound. So in other words, Christ cannot reign... Uh, in peace and righteousness and justice and holiness, uh, all the things that we read about in the millennial kingdom, uh, while Satan is still influencing the earth the way he does currently. And so this is necessary. This is part of the necessity for the millennial kingdom uh, for Satan to be bound. God's already prepared a place for the future binding of Satan. Uh, and in fact, uh, Jesus himself uh, stated this in Matthew 25. He kind of gives us an understanding of what hell or, and or the lake of fire 
both are. He says, and this is talking about the judgment um, of those, uh, of the sheep and goat judgment, which, by the way, I did a study on that this week, too, because of the question that came up last week. And I want to share that with you if we got time at the end, but this is, but it was, it was exciting. But uh, he says, those who left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. So hell was prepared for Satan. It was prepared for fallen angels. It's being used currently right now for some of these fallen angels that have already been cast into the pit of darkness. They've already been cast into the abyss to wait the future judgment. We know that from Jude and 2 Peter and 1 Peter. Uh, we know that it's a place to hold souls of those who have rejected Christ until that future judgment, the great white, great white throne. But there will come a time for a thousand years in the future where it will hold Satan so that Satan, just like the demons that are being held there now and just like the souls that are being held there now, uh, will have no influence, ability to, um, uh, to, to do any work here on earth. Um, and then he'll be released, and we'll talk about that. Uh, but this is what it's prepared for. So hell... Uh, this is one of the purposes of hell, is to imprison uh, Satan during this time. And hell is a temporary prison. It's filled with the wrath of God. And like I said, it's where condemned souls and spirits await their final judgment, the great white throne. And, I, and actually, and we'll, we'll talk about this when we get to the great white throne, at the very end of the great white throne, the final judgment is that death and Hades, or death and hell, death and the abyss, are also cast into the lake of fire because there's no more need uh, for a place of holding uh, like hell, uh, when the eternal uh, judgment has been, has been uh, handed down and uh, is active in the lake of fire. So, so here, we're talking about uh, the place of his judgment. Uh, and he says in verse 20, uh, I'm sorry, in verse 1 in chapter 20, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven. And here is where we have our fourth uh, uh, Kai Adon chronology we talked about in each of these. The, uh, you, you, every time John says, and I saw, or then I saw, it's taking you to a different part of this chronological uh, uh, narrative. So he sees Christ returning, and then it says, and then I saw an angel in heaven declaring it's dinner time. That's the Armageddon thing. So it, it takes the, the vision goes from heaven down to the earth where the armies are gathered. And then he says, and, um, oh, and then I saw the armies gathered for Armageddon. Uh, he saw the angel declaring it, then the, the battle. And here in chapter 20, verse 1, he says, and then I saw an angel coming to bind Satan in the abyss. And then we continue on. Then I saw the thousand-year kingdom of Jesus Christ. Then I saw the great white throne of judgment. Then I saw all sinners judged by God. And then I saw the new heavens and the new earth. So from Revelation 19.11 through Revelation 28, or 21.8, you have these eight progressive Kai Idons that show you this chronological uh, ending uh, of Revelation. So the reason that's really important is because, again, I don't want to get deep into this, but only the premillennial view looks at it as chronological. The amillennial view, the postmillennial view, they, they recognize this, I mean, all throughout Revelation, how these Kai Idons have always pointed you to the next thing, but then when they get to uh, 21 and 24, the thousand-year kingdom and the binding of Satan, they take those things and say, well, those things happened at the cross. But it just doesn't make sense in the chronology. Uh, the chronology lays straight out like this, and it's just a narrative of what is happening at the very end. And so, anyway, like I said, I don't want to get too deep into that. There's two great books over here that can tell you more about that. But here we are uh, in the fourth of these, uh, Then I Saw, and here we see Satan being bound. And he says that an angel was coming down from heaven... So why does this angel come down from heaven to bind Satan? Most likely because Satan has been cast out of heaven, is bound now to the earth. We saw that in Revelation 12, uh, 7 through 12. Um, I, I, I didn't get to study this with you guys, but when you studied Revelation 12, it says there was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels were waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels were waged war. So this is Satan and his demons waging war with Michael and the angels in heaven. Again, something we would have no understanding of outside of Scripture revealing this to us. And he says, and they were not strong enough. There was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon, Satan, was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. So again, a very clear title, not only of who he is, but what he currently is doing and what he is going to be doing in the future. And it says, and he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And then he goes on at the very end to say, Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. So 
and then we see what happens in the tribulation. So he's got a short time on earth. This is the last three and a half years of the tribulation. During that short time, he pours out all of his wrath, uh, giving his power and authority over to the Antichrist. The Antichrist begins to per- persecute Christians on the earth during that time uh, and is actually given to him by God to overcome the saints. I know we talked about some of that in here. But here, the short time is over. This is the ending of the short time. The, the, the tribulation is over. Christ's return, Satan's short time of pouring forth as much wrath as he can is finished. Uh, and now an angel of the Lord is descending to bind and remove the former leader from God's creation to imprison him uh, in hell until his final release and then his ultimate judgment. Does that make sense? Yeah. I think you're talking about Judge one, Jude one six, right? Where you're talking about they 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 transgressed their domain. They, they did it purposely. They left their position. Yeah. No, no, I no. Uh-uh. Uh, so good thought, but I don't think so at all. Like he he doesn't become a physical being. Neither do the angels. Even when they uh, transgress their domain, as Jude talks about in Jude one six, it's talking about what happened in Genesis six. Yeah, so now, yeah, but but it also says in First Peter two and in First Peter, I'm sorry, First Peter one and in Second Peter that they have now been that they've been. They, they've been cast... We're going to get to that. They've already been cast into the abyss or into hell. Yeah, yeah. That's what it said. Yeah. Well, they're just, they're just bound by God to the earth. Like, we're going to talk about the binding of angels. There's other angels that are bound by God and not allowed to leave places on earth or, uh, you know, Satan's been cast out of heaven already. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I tell you what. For right now, let's put a pause on it. So let's 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 see what the scripture says here about this. Good thoughts. Um, I can tell you just just as a, a foundational thought that spiritual angels always are angels. They never become anything else. In the same way that we as humans are always humans, whether we're here, whether we're in heaven, whether we're in the millennial kingdom, the new heavens and the new earth, no one changes species or kinds ever. Well, but, uh, yeah, again, I just think, I think you're putting together things that, I don't think you can build a strong case that an angel ever becomes physical outside of either possession and or being visible, and even that's permitted uh, by the Lord. But, but here, we're not talking about that. Right now, here today, let's, let's focus here, and let me, let me finish one through three, and that would be a good, at the end of class, question sort of thing. Because we're just derailing, that's all. And again, it's not a, please forgive me, I don't mean that in a, 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 a rude way at all. I just want to focus on these three verses and, and stay in the, the main frame of thought. Because if not, I mean, we can, that's the thing with any of these things, with Revelation. Uh, there's, there's so many thoughts out there. Even you saying the mixing together with the, the, uh, the clay, you're talking about the, the final kingdom and the clay and the, uh, the um, iron mixed together and all that. Uh, you're, you're taking a lot of different things and putting together to build something, which uh, either one, you've done in your own mind or you've read someone that's put that together, which is fine thought. But th- there's a lot of things there to unpack. Uh, 
to answer that, which are just going to, we will never get to this. You know what I mean? And so I want to, I'm going to. Well, yeah, we'll get to that. So, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, I just disagree uh, respectfully. Uh, and I think that God can bind angels to locations, to places easily, just by a word. You know, there's even angels that are bound to the Euphrates River that are probably there now, bound, waiting for the day that he dries up the river, the Euphrates, to prepare the way for Armageddon. Uh, so, again, angels in the end are ultimately just... Uh, created beings of God, those who are his holy angels are his messengers and his workers that do, that speak his word, do his will, and those who are against him are, are, are simply, you know, they're still, they're still created spiritual beings, but they can't do anything outside of the Lord controlling, commanding, and they only, in the end, even Satan, in all of his scheming, ultimately can only do exactly what the Lord desires for him to do, if you want to say it that way, or what is in God's will, if you want to say it that way. Uh, and so even in his evil, it always works out for the good of his children. It's always going to work out to this end, you know, uh, to where he will be bound and Christ will reign. Um, so, again, good, good thoughts, but I'm going to jump back in uh, to, to what is going on here. So you got three things uh, in 20b. Just get our mind wrapped back around the verse. So, I saw the angel coming down from heaven. So he's coming down because Satan has been bound to earth uh, after Revelation 12. He's been cast out of heaven after the fight with Michael and the other angels. And this angel that comes down to do the binding has a key. The key is for the abyss, and he holds a great chain in his hand. I think the best thing to do here first is to identify the abyss. We've already talked about it a little bit. Um, It appears seven times in Revelation, Revelation 9, verses 1, 2, and 11, Revelation 11, 7, and Revelation 17, 8 uh, are the five verses with the seven references to the abyss. Uh, The the abyss always refers to a place of demon imprisonment or demon captivity. Even in Revelation, we've seen the abyss talked about in either either this, the the Antichrist, he comes out of the abyss, right? The, The beast that comes out of the abyss. Uh, from the earth and is identified as the Antichrist. And then the locusts in Revelation 9 that come out of the abyss and once out of the abyss are able to inflict pain on the people on the earth for five months. They're permitted by God to do that, but they both come out of the abyss. Matt Wehmeyer in one of his books over here um, says this. Um, I'm going to shorten this quote. There's more before this, but this is kind of the end of the quote. Uh, but before this, he talks about uh, the word abyss, uh, abyssos, which is originally, it means just, it just means bottomless or unfathomable. That's what it means. So when you hear about the bottomless pit, it comes from this word. So it's an unfathomable, bottomless uh, pit. Uh, he talks about it use, being used in the Old Testament, the Septuagint. He talks about it use, being used in, old, in, in Jewish writings. Uh, it always refers to a place of, of depth or punishment. But then in the New Testament, he says, Abyssos is not applesauce, by the way. Every time I say it, I think about applesauce. <laughs> this is much worse than applesauce. <laughs> uh, apples, Abyssos is used only nine times, has two basic usages, either referring to the realm of the dead in Romans uh, 10.7 or a prison uh, for evil spirits, Luke 8.31, and then these uses in Revelation. Uh, it's uh, used in Revelation 20, conveys this, uh, this second nuance of the meaning, a prison for evil spirits, which is clear from the description of Satan being thrown into the abyss and having it sealed over him in verse 3, and the description of Satan being released from his prison in verse 7. Uh, very simply put, uh, the abyss of Revelation 20 is a spiritual prison. Um, and we know, like I said, once he is released from the abyss, if you keep reading in Revelation 20, after he's released, he immediately goes back to what he's doing currently, which is deceiving the nations. And there's an immediate uh, leader to, to pull together all of those who feigned allegiance to the millennial kingdom, uh, and he deceives the nations. We talked about Revelation 9, 11, that it's the, uh, there's an angel from the abyss, the locusts or the demons that come out of the abyss to afflict pain on the earth uh, for five months. Revelation 17, I already mentioned that. Uh, that the, uh, the beast that comes out of the abyss and then will go to destruction is the false prophet. We saw that destruction last week as he's cast into lake of fire. Um, and then if you look at Luke 8, uh, we don't have, uh, in Luke 8, you see uh, there's a demon-possessed man, possessed by many demons. They refer to themselves as legion because they are many. And they, he begs, these demons beg Christ not to cast them into the abyss. 
because they know that the abyss is a place where they would have no, no more interaction, ability to, to do things, to move freely and to, to, to do their work here on earth. Uh, and so he cast them into the swine, and the swine run to the, uh, to the lake. So all that being said, um, what we see uh, from these verses and what we see uh, scripturally is both angels and people are able to exist in the pit or in the abyss or in the eternal fire. Uh, it's a place of holding uh, until a final judgment. Does that make sense? And both mankind and angels and Satan, who is an angel, will be part of that final judgment and then cast into the eternal lake of fire. But hell, or the abyss, or Hades, or the outer darkness, or the pit, all of those things refer to this place of holding, uh, which is already currently full of the wrath of God. Uh, There's not a a huge distinction between hell and the eternal lake of fire when it comes to what is happening and what it is, Uh, but there's it's it's just uh, a place of judgment before the final judgment. And like I said, it's not just a New Testament concept. If you read in Ezekiel 32, it talks about this pit and all the nations that have been judged by God and now have gone down into the pit. Um, and uh, it's uh, referred to as uh, the, uh, a few things there, both the netherworld, the pit, Sheol, and a place of the uncircumcised. Uh, he talks about Egypt being brought down to the netherworld, going down to the pit, going down with the uncircumcised, uh, being in the midst of Sheol, going down, uh, lying still with all the uncircumcised. And then what, what we were referring to earlier in First Peter 3 and in, first, in Second Peter 2, uh, you see God has already put spirits uh, in prison who, uh, who were disobedient in the days of Noah, um, who uh, transgressed their domain in the days of Noah, and they've already been reserved by God prior to this day into the pit or into uh, hell. He says in 1 Peter three nineteen through 20, he went and made proclamations to the spirits now in prison. So after Christ had victory over death and Satan and sin on the cross, he goes and makes proclamation to those who could not uh, foresee or witness what happened to the cross. Every other demonic being on this planet would have been very aware of what happened to the cross that day. But those who were already cast into hell would not have had any ability to understand or to see or to know that Christ now has victory uh, over sin and death. So he went and made proclamation to them. And then in Second Peter 2, God did not spare angels when they sinned. So these are specifically talking about angels, but he cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. Again, they're, they're waiting for the final judgment of God, their final sentencing. So the bottomless pit, the abyss, hell, Hades, all the same place, used in different, for different, uh, in different ways and purposes in the Bible, but you don't have five different places of holding the dead uh, you got one place, um, and it is the abyss. It is hell. And then they're waiting the final uh, judgment of God. It's also referred to in the New Testament as Gehenna or Tartarus or Sheol. So uh, that's, that's the place. Uh, the abyss is hell. The key that he's holding, uh, basically whoever has the key of hell is the one that is able to open and shut hell. It's the one that has authority over hell. And we talked about in the past, you know, uh, the cartoons and Catholic theology and stuff like that make Satan kind of the king of hell. You know, it's like that's where his throne is. That's where he's doing all of his work. That's the last place Satan wants to be. Uh, Jesus Christ, if you want to say it that way, if you want to talk about authority over hell, he's the one that holds the key. Christ is the one who is pouring out his wrath on those who are in hell. And Revelation 9, 1, I did write these down. The only other two times we, we see a key in Revelation are these two times. I'm sorry, there's one more. He holds the key to the throne of David. But here it talks about the fifth angel. We've already talked about that in Revelation 9. A star was from heaven. This is an angel which had fallen to the earth. And the key, the bottomless pit, was given to him. So someone gave this angel the key. He opens hell, and that's where the demons come out for the fifth plague, or the, the fifth uh, trumpet. Revelation 1.18, we find out who holds the keys of death and hell, and it's Jesus Christ himself. Uh, Christ identifying himself in Revelation 1 says, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. So Christ is the only one that can, that can throw in or take out of hell. Does that make sense? He's the one that holds the keys. And so here he has given the key of hell to this angel for the purpose of opening up and throwing Satan in to the prison. That's, that's what's going on here. And it says that he has a chain. And again, when we talk about a chain, this is something that uh, um, millennials and post-millennials talk about. How can a spiritual being be uh, bound by a physical chain? But again, it's like there's no reason to even read this as a physical chain. The, the simple answer is he's being bound. The, the terminology is a chain. 
but he's being bound just like any other angel has been bound uh, in Scripture. Um, you have the most powerful angel here, and he's bound because God is going to bind him with whatever this chain is. This, uh, we know in Jude 1.6, and we've already talked about this, the angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. So Christ, God, can easily bind spiritual beings. It's not a, it's not a problem for him. Uh, so when we talk about the chain, we're not talking about a physical contraption binding a spiritual being. We're talking about something spiritual binding Satan. He's being bound uh, in the same way that we can be bound. Revelation nine fourteen. 14, uh, uh, when uh, uh, was this the, is the sixth trumpet, I believe, uh, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Uh, so again, you have angels that are bound here on earth spatially bound in some way by God until this time. They're purposed for this final judgment, but they're bound. So again, uh, the binding of a spiritual being um, isn't, isn't, a, isn't a hard thing to grasp biblically. It's just hard for us to understand because, um, because we, we look at that word chain and we think, I don't think, not, not, not we like collectively we, but many people look at that and think, how can a chain bind Satan? And the easy answer is because God wanted it to. I mean, that's the simple answer. But I don't think there's anything in the, the text that makes you read that and go, we're talking about a physical chain. We're just talking about Satan being bound. All right. That was a, a long time for that one. Let's jump into the next part. The person of the binding. This is pretty clear. We don't have to stay long on this one. The person being bound is Satan. Uh, it says, and he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, the devil, who is Satan. Four titles. Four names for the one being bound. Without a doubt, this is Satan who is being bound. The adversary, the ruler of this world. We know Satan's current authority, right? Biblically, his current authority is he's the ruler of this world. John 12, John 14, John 16, three times Christ calls Satan the ruler of this world. Jesus Christ, who is the ruler of all things, identifies Satan as the ruler of this world. That is his function, title, and purpose right now. Um, in 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 4, he's called the God of this world. So again, the binding could not have happened at the cross because, you know, people say, well, you know, Jesus identified him as the rule of the world before the cross, but Paul identified him as the God of the world after the cross. Satan's still doing the very same thing he was doing before the cross, during the cross, and after the cross. He's always ruling over the present world system. Uh, we see that at the end of Revelation where he gives his authority and power to the Antichrist to be his physical authority on earth that is acting out the authority, the spiritual authority he has always had given to him by God since Genesis 3. Uh, Ephesians 2, 1 through 2, he's the prince of the power of the air. And in Matthew 4, when he offers his dominion of the earth to Jesus, Jesus didn't rebuke him and say, you don't have that authority. Jesus said, you worship only God. And so... Satan has the authority to be the ruler of the world, the god of this world, the prince of the power of the air currently. Uh, and, and this is the moment where that ends. Does that make sense? Um, so uh, his, his authority is restrained by God's spirit. Uh, his authority is restrained by God's purpose and will. He can only do to the extent that God allows him. We see that in Job, right? Even when he wants to tempt one man to, to, sin, or to, to curse God or to deny God, Satan can only do up to the point where God allows him to do. And, and whatever Satan does to that one man only prove that man's faith, and now has become a proof of all of us that Satan has no power or authority over any of the children of God. Though he does tempt, though he does scheme, though he can inflict pain and hurt and trials and t- testing and temptation, all of that ultimately will still only produce the strengthening of our faith, the, the holiness that we just talked about in in the first service, and the glory and the will of God. So it says he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, uh, the devil who is Satan. Laid hold of, it just means he seized him, he grasped him, he apprehended him or arrested him. It's a, it's a common term used in the New Testament. Uh, when Herod arrested John, same word. Uh, when they plotted together to seize Jesus. So it's, it's, it's talking about uh, a seizure or an apprehension of someone uh, to take them under arrest. Uh, the names describing Satan here, uh, the serpent of, uh, well, the first one is the dragon. Uh, we see the dragon, uh, the word dragon used to describe Satan 13 times in 12 different verses, all in Revelation. So only in Revelation do you see him described as the dragon uh, like this. You can make a case in the Old Testament that the Leviathan from Isaiah is the same dragon. Um, but it's a clear 
that's a clear name for Satan in Revelation. Uh, the serpent of old, again, uh, it's, it's literally the ancient serpent is meant to remind us of Genesis 3. That's the whole point, to take you back to Genesis 3, the beginning of sin, what Satan did there, that serpent of old, here he is at the very end. And here he is, Christ is about to do more of the work of the crushing of the head of Satan. He crushed his head at the cross, uh, and he's going to finish the work in the future. Um, and Second uh, Corinthians 11, where he talks about the serpent that deceived Eve. And then the devil, another name of Satan, it just means slanderer or malicious gossip, uh, Diabolos. Uh, it says he laid hold of uh, uh, the devil. Um, it's used 37 times in the New Testament, mainly in the Gospels. Jesus refers to Satan as the devil many, many times in the Gospels. It was the devil that tempted him in the desert. Uh, it's the, uh, he calls uh, the Pharisees uh, sons of the devil, uh, who was a murderer from the beginning and the father of all lies in John 8. Um, he tells us in Ephesians 6 to put on the full armor of God so we can stand firm against the schemes of the devil. So this is a common name for Satan, but this is good to know. Keep this in mind. That word diabolos, which is a name given to Satan because he is a slander and a malicious gossip, is the exact same word that Christ war- or that the New Testament warns us not to be in verses like 1 Timothy 3, where it says, Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips. It says, not diabolos, not diabolus, so the plural. So he's saying, don't be little devils. Don't be Satan uh, in your speech. And the same thing, men, you're not off the hook. 2 Timothy 3, 2 through 3, men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, and malicious gossips. Same word. So when we gossip and when we slander, all we're doing is imitating the, the, the character, the nature, and the speech of our father, Satan, who is the devil. Uh, and then Satan is used 30, 36 times to identify this being. And the word Satan just means adversary, opponent, or accuser. All right? So that's just what his function is. He's always an adversary of Christ. He's always an adversary to the people of God. He's always the one that accuses us. It says that he stands and accuses the brethren day and night before the throne of God. By God's wonderful grace, we have a defender, Jesus Christ, who defends us. Satan rightfully accuses us, but Christ spilled his blood for us. He's the one that accuses Israel. He's the one that accuses um, uh uh, the priest, uh, what's his name, is Zechariah, Joshua. So he's always accusing. Um, and, and, and we know he currently uh, uh, roams the earth doing these things. You know, we see in Job, like I said, Job 1, Job 2, Satan, you know, he's in heaven. He's talking to God. Where have you been? Roaming the earth. He's roaming the earth. He's free to move. And he's looking to accuse. He's looking to slander. He's looking to, uh, to devour. That's what he does. Um, we see that in the, the New Testament as well. Um, he has a, a united kingdom that is doing his work. Uh, we see over and over uh, people being tempted by Satan. Mark one thirteen in Acts 5.3, Ananias, uh, it says Satan filled his heart to lie against the Holy Spirit. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 5.5, 5, uh, they deliver one over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. In 1 Corinthians 7, he, he warns them not to be tempted uh, by Satan. So over and over and over, Satan, we see Satan doing his work in the New Testament after the cross accusing the world, roaming the world, uh, looking for those to devour, influencing the nations. This is what he's always doing. He disguises himself as an angel of light. He's always scheming. Uh, Revelation 12, 9, he is the one, Satan, who deceives the whole world. Uh, and again, Revelation 20, 7 through 8, after this imprisonment, Satan is released, and the first thing it says he does, he comes out to deceive the nations. This is what he does. This is what he's doing currently. Every world religion, every ideology, everything that argues against the truth of God's perfect living word is part of the schemings of Satan to deceive the whole world in not trusting in, believing in, following Jesus Christ. He's the God of the world that blinds the minds of the unbelieving. This is always what he does. So Satan cannot, is not bound right now. He is alive, free and well, and he's doing his work of deception. Yes, there was a, 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 a crushing blow at the cross. And yes, Jesus Christ now has power over sin and death. Not that he didn't before, but has done the work at the cross. But Satan is currently scheming. Here, he will not be scheming. Once he's in the abyss, there is no deception of the nations during that time. 
There, and we'll talk about that when we talk about the millennial kingdom. There can be a feigned obedience. There can be a feigned worship. There can be uh, a, a, an outside that, that submits to and does the will and the work of Christ as king on earth because he rules with a rod of iron. But there's still, and this is, this is what's even crazy, and we'll talk about this when we get there. Without the presence or the influence of Satan at all in this creation, unredeemed mankind still has plenty in them built within internally in their fallen nature to be rebellious against God, even though they can on the outside look like they're living in allegiance to him. And all it takes is the releasing of Satan at the end of a thousand years to gather all those people together to fight one more time. So we may be leaderless without him, but we are sinners nonetheless, and we don't need Satan to influence us. You can't blame Satan, you know, like Adam and Eve. You, you got it built in. We have our own fallen natures. Finally, the last thing, how are we doing time-wise? Oh, we're okay. I thought, I thought we were way over. The purpose of the binding, all right? So you got the place of the binding, the abyss. He's got the key to the abyss. Uh, he binds Satan, uh, and then he got the, the person of the binding, which is Satan. And here you have the purpose of the binding, all right? It says in the end of ch- uh, verse 2, and uh, he bound him, this angel binds Satan for a thousand years, and he threw him into the abyss. He shut it, and he sealed it over him. And here's the purpose statement. So that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years are completed. So there will be a future deception. And it says, and after these things, he must be released for a short time. Now, we'll get to the must be released part because your first thought is like, why? Why must he be released? <laughs> and the answer is because that's exactly what God says must happen. <laughs> it's just part of God's plan. So here's where all the action takes place. Satan has already been apprehended and arrested. Uh, and now the angel binds, throws, shuts, and seals. Four uh, active verbs here talking about what this angel does with this spiritual being, Satan. And the first thing he does is he binds him for a thousand years. Uh, the word bind here, it just means to imprison, to restrict, to prohibit, or to bind. So he is, he is imprisoned, um, and he is prohibited uh, from doing uh, whatever he always does. Michael Vlock, uh, in his book, says, Satan is incarcerated and confined in a real place called the abyss. So then, more than a specific function of Satan is hindered. The reason he says that is because, again, amillennialists and postmillennialists say that the binding just means that he can't stop the gospel, he can't stop the church here on earth. He can still do everything else he does. He just can't stop the church. Um, but but that, that's not what the text is saying here. The text is saying he is bound, and because he's bound, he can't deceive the nations any longer. Um, and so this is, a, this is a, a binding of everything that he is. It's a binding of the person of Satan, not just one function. Does that make sense? Uh, Satan himself is absolutely confined to a place that results in a complete cessation of all he does. Satan is imprisoned. Being in the abyss means no access to the earth. Again, how Christ can reign and rule for a thousand years and all the nations come before him. They all come to worship him. They all come and bow down before him willingly. Now, some of them against their internal will, but they all are able to do it and do it during that time because he's incarcerated and he's imprisoned. Um, but uh, anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. So for, um, and then how long is he bound? For a thousand years. He's bound for a thousand years. Uh, for a thousand years, he'll have no influence on earth. And it's just a, a coincidence in the Bible that Christ also reigns for a thousand years. So <laughs> Satan is bound. Christ reigns in peace, righteousness, justice, and, and, and uh, love on earth. And uh, so during that thousand years when he's bound, there is peace on earth. There's long life on earth. There's immediate justice on earth. There's righteousness, mercy, gentleness, love, obedience, worship on earth, the healing of the earth. Because all of the work and functioning of Satan during that time uh, is cut off. Um, now, this is important. Again, as an exegete, if you're looking at Scripture, anytime you see something repeated, there's, that always means emphasis. It always means focus your attention there. And it always means what it says. Uh, and so here, six times in six verses, he repeats the length of time that Satan will be bound. A thousand years. Um, there's a major emphasis on the timing. And I believe because, probably because... Christ knew there would come a day in his church where people would not believe the timing, which is right now. We're in the minority of, of, of professing believers on the planet 
that believe there's an actual literal 1,000 year reign of Jesus Christ on this earth. It's a literal 1,000 years and Satan's literally bound in 1,000 years in hell. The majority of people, both in the reform circle uh, and in just the, the, the Christian world here on earth, do not believe in a literal 1,000 year kingdom of Christ. But look at this, Revelation 22 through 7. It says he bound him for a thousand years. Verse 3, he threw him into the abyss and shut it, sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. And after this will be released. Verse 4, they came to life. They reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Verse 5, the rest of the dead did not come until the thousand years were completed. That's the first resurrection. Verse 6, they will be priests of God and of Christ. They will reign with him for a thousand years. And verse 7, when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. It's very explicit in the text. It's a thousand years. It's a thousand year kingdom. It's a thousand years he's bound. It's a thousand years and then the judgment. And like I said, any good exegete knows when there's repetition, especially that much repetition in such a short, concise section of scripture, there is a high emphasis on a thousand years. And it is what it is. Now, an argument against that is that it's a symbolic number. But the only problem with that, and and I'm going to just throw this quote up there, because this is the best quote that I saw, and it comes from Robert Thomas's commentary. There's no place in Revelation where any number is used symbolically, that you can make a definitive case that it is used symbolically. In fact, every number means the numerical value of what it's stated to mean all throughout Revelation. And then why would the all sudden God and the author then just throw out this weird, arbitrary, thousand years could mean a lot of things. It doesn't make sense. And, and actually, that's not how numbers are used in the Bible. Uh, Robert Thomas says, if the writer wanted a very large symbolic number, we've already used larger numbers, right? And think about this. This is just a thought to throw out there. If a thousand years is supposed to mean something bigger, I mean, it's already been 2,000 years since, you know, uh, since Christ had victory on the cross. And, if, and, and if, if the binding of Satan is during this time, he used a number that is smaller than the actual number of years that he's been bound to describe an indefinite number of years. That makes zero sense. It'd be like, you know, if, if, if your birthday is 400 days away and you're like, it's 40 days away, M- meaning that you're exaggerating a bigger number, that it makes no sense. Anyway, but he says if the writer wanted a very large symbolic number, why didn't he use 144,000 like he did in Revelation 7 and 14? Why didn't he use 200 million like he used in Revelation 9? Why didn't he use 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands like he said in Revelation 5? Or just say an incalculably large number, like he did in Revelation 7-9, a great multitude which no one could count. If it just means an indefinite number that's large, just, you could just say that, you know? Uh, the fact is that no number in Revelation is verifiably a symbolic number. On the other hand, non-symbolic usage of numbers is always the rule. It's the rule in Revelation. It requires multiplication, multiplication of a literal 12,000 by a literal 12 tribes of Israel to come up with 144,000 Israelites in Revelation 7. The churches, the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls, literally seven. Uh, the three unclean spirits of Revelation 16 are three unclean spirits. The three angels connected with the last three woes in Revelation add up to a total of three. The seven last plagues amount to seven the equivalency of 1,260 days and three and a half years necessitate a non-symbolic understanding of both numbers to talk about the last half of the tribulation. Uh, the 12 apostles and the 12 tribes of Israel are literally 12 in Revelation 21. And the seven churches are seven, in seven literal cities. Yet the confirmation of a single number in Revelation as symbolic is impossible. You may want it to be. You may have read that it was. You may have heard the seven is God's number and three and seven together add up to ten, which is supposed to be the the perfect uh, number of God. But it's like, but who made all that up? And why do you believe that? And where else in scripture do you read that? Nowhere. Numbers are what numbers mean. And God uses numbers precisely all the time in scripture. And in Revelation, there's nothing changes. He uses numbers with precision, not with mystical undefinable meaning. And, and in fact, you know, if you, if you can't define what the number is, then in the end, I mean, it can mean anything, right? If seven's, a, if seven's the perfect number, why? And who decided that? And, and, and every time it uses, is it just God's number? You know? I mean, if there are seven, 
people that died in a plague is like, well, that was God's perfect number. You know, it's like, it's seven to seven. So anyway, I just thought that was a really good point. Numbers mean what numbers mean. A thousand years means a thousand years. So back to the main slide. All right. Point, bound him for a thousand years. He threw him in the abyss. And here's all the verbs. He threw him in. It just means he cast, he put, he threw. So he, he is completely removed from the earth, removed from deceit, removed from influence in this created order. Um, and this is why demons are already bound there. Uh, just like the locusts we said in Revelation 9, they had no ability to harm. They have no ability to inflict pain or to do anything until they're released from the abyss. It's being out of the abyss that gives them the freedom to move and to do uh, only what the Lord permits. Um, and just like the Antichrist, uh, his power, his authority, his reign, they uh, were given to him by Satan after he came out of the abyss. So when Satan is thrown into the abyss, Satan has no power. Remember, Satan is just a created being. He's not like God's counterpart, you know. It's not like he can do what he wants to do. He's created by God. So God puts him there, he's there. God casts him like a fire, he's there. God permits him to roam, he's there. But God casts him out of heaven to the earth, he's there. Satan is only God's Satan. I think Martin Luther said something like that. I've never actually read the quote. I've just heard people quote the quote. <laughs> uh, it says he threw him out, and then he shut it. So he shuts the, the, uh, the door or the, the, the gate to the abyss. Uh, it just means to close, to bar, to lock. Again, it's a common word used over and over in the New Testament. Every time it just means to shut, shut a door. Well, he shut hell, and Satan is inside it. And then it says he sealed it. It just means he enclosed it with a seal. He secured it. He sealed it. So again, not that he needs a seal. Like, well, if we don't have this seal, he'll get out. I mean, if he could just shut it, it's fine. But doubly prove that Satan is not escaping, can have no influence. God seals it with his seal. So Satan is bound, cast, shut, and sealed. He is stuck in the abyss. He has no ability to influence anything outside of the abyss. And no one can break this seal. Jesus Christ holds the key. So Christ, who holds the key to the abyss, uh, is the only one that could permit Satan to come out. So who permits Satan to come out at the end? Christ. Christ permits Satan to come out and to deceive the nations at the very end. Uh, And it says, the purpose statement here, I don't know if I put it up here. The purpose statement is, so that he would not deceive the nations any longer. That is why he's in the abyss. So that he would not deceive. It means he will not mislead. He will not lead astray. Uh, There will be no more straying from the truth, wandering from the truth. Again, a very common New Testament word that always means to deceive or mislead which is exactly what he's doing right now, which means he is not bound right now. He's doing what he always does. During this time, he cannot mislead. He cannot deceive. He cannot lead astray. He is incapable of doing that because he is in the abyss or in hell. Um, so again, this is what Satan has done since Genesis 3 all the way up to Revelation 19, 21. This is always what he is at work doing, deceiving. And it says he will not deceive any longer, which means he was doing it up until this point and he cannot do it after this point. It doesn't mean, again, going back to uh, saying that he was uh, bound to, be, uh, to not allow, or you know, he can't uh, thwart the gospel from going forth. Uh, that's not what the text says. It says that he is no longer, any longer able to deceive. Um, and so all that being said, we just studied all this in Adventure Club, by the way. We talked about Satan, I guess it was, it was a little while back, but Satan's activity in this present age. And right now, there's no binding. Right now, he lies, he tempts, he deceives, he t- uh, thwarts, he takes advantage. Um, uh, he snatches away the word of God. He makes unbelievers not believe. He deceives unbelievers. I mean, we talked about all this. and The kids get it. I think a five-year-old child knows that Satan's not bound right now. There's no way because he's active right now. Um, and so um, when he's bound, he's unable to do anything. Here's three real quick quotes by three really awesome dudes. The binding of Satan means that for the first time in history, mankind will not have to deal with Satan's deceptive tactics. Still got to deal with their heart, but not with him. To be bound and confined in the abyss is to be totally cut off from any activity or influence on the earth. And the imagery of throwing Satan into a pit and shutting it and sealing it over him gives a picture of total removal from influence on earth. I think it's very simple. And it says he is bound, not forever. This is not the final judgment. He's bound until, it says, the thousand years are completed. There is a completion of the millennial reign of Christ. Have you thought about that? There is an end to the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean there's an end to his reign. It doesn't mean that there's going to be some, I mean, he will reign forever. 
But there will come an end of the binding, an end of the kingdom, an end of that time, and the beginning of a new heavens and a new earth, which is really neat. Um, so, And it says that he must be released at the end of the thousand years. It's necessary. It's necessary for him to be unbound, untied, unfettered, loosed, and freed to roam the earth again for a short time. And there's a purpose for that, and we'll get to that too. So all that being said, uh, there's not a lot of Old Testament counterparts to this. Honestly, you know how a lot of times I try to take Armageddon, then we look at Joel, and we look at Isaiah and all that. The only place that I know of, and I'm open to any suggestions here, is in Isaiah 24 when it's talking about the day of the Lord. It's talking about the final judgment of God. And it is fascinating in the Old Testament when it says this. It says, so it'll happen in that day. And this is, again, talking about the destruction of the earth. So this isn't just like a day of, a day of the Lord, like, you know, when Babylon destroys Israel or something. This is, this is it. This is the final day. It says, the Lord will punish the host of heaven on high. That's the angels. And the kings of the earth on earth. And we just watched that. So angels and kings are being punished. And it says, and they together, they will be gathered together, the men of the earth and the angels in, in the heavens, like prisoners in the dungeon. That sounds much like the abyss or the pit that we just talked about. Uh, and it says, and after many days they will be punished. So they're going to be there for an extended period of time. Uh, now we know from Revelation there will be a release and then there will be a final judgment. But this is a confined place of holding for both angels and men until a final day of punishment. Uh, and it says, and then the moon will be abashed and the sun ashamed. The Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem. And his glory will be before his elders. So... Like I said, there's not a lot about the binding of Satan in prison for a thousand years in the Old Testament. The only other places I could think are Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, maybe, where uh, it talks about King of Tyre, the king of Babylon, and then talks about who's behind them, which is Satan, and it talks about his judgment. Uh, but it doesn't specifically talk about his binding. You know, it, it, could, it could easily be his eternal judgment in the lake of fire. Um, but there definitely will be a future binding of Satan. There will be a future time where Satan can no longer do what Satan always does. Uh, and then at the end of that binding, there will be a release and then a, uh, an eternal judgment. But the application is this. Rejoice. Our enemy not only has been vanquished at the cross, Jesus Christ is victorious over sin and death and Satan at the cross and has already proven his ability not only to... to to, to succumb to the temptation of Satan, but his power over Satan. Uh, but he's returning, and Satan will be cast into hell and bound. And it's that simple. Christ will reign on this earth, and he will rule with a rod of iron. We talked about that. For those who belong to him, he will care for and shepherd his people in peace and righteousness and justice for a thousand years. Our adversary that we hate, that is behind all of this evil in this world, will one day be incarcerated, he will be imprisoned, and then he will be judged forever. And Jesus Christ, the son of David, will be crowned king of the earth. He will sit on David's throne. He will fulfill the Abrahamic new Davidic covenants. He will rule and reign for a thousand years. All of the things God has promised in the Old and the New Testament will happen exactly like he said it would happen. It's just a matter of timing. God is always precise with every word he speaks, every number he gives, and everything that he does. And he will return, and he will rule and reign on this planet. And you want to be with him, being, come, splitting the heavens and coming with him and ruling and reigning together with him on this earth. And all of that is a free gift of his grace if you believe in Jesus Christ and are born again now. So, church, this is wonderful. We rejoice. Our adversary is vanquished and bound. And, and for those that do not know him, repent, believe in Jesus Christ. His salvation is a free gift and you can be part of, of, of his eternal blessing and, and glory. So that's all I got for today. Any other questions? We, pro- we can jump into yours later, but not, not right now. Yeah. First uh, Peter 3. Uh, where was it? I can't remember the exact. It's First Peter three. Yeah, yeah. First Peter three. Yes. Well, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of binding. So, you know, Jesus talks about 
Uh, how can, uh, you know, he, he freed the demon. There's the demon-possessed dude. Jesus casts out the demon. The disciples say, how can you do that? He's like, well, you know, a strong man has to bind uh, the, the, the person before he can come in and take his stuff. And, and so, um, there, and then that, you know, Christ obviously at the cross in some capacity has victory over Satan who, uh, who had the power of death uh, and now it frees those uh, who uh, through the fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Um, No, I, I think it's just, it's just referring to Satan's authority on earth. I mean, because it talks about even sin. You know, when you read in um, Romans 5, it talks about sin having power from, from Adam to Moses, even though there was no law. The law just, uh, just revealed even to a greater degree what sin was. But it wasn't like the law brought about sin. You know what I mean? Um, and it's not like there was no salvation prior to Christ dying on the cross. I mean, all people we, in Hebrews, you know, they were saved by the same faith looking ahead to what Christ would do. Uh, so all that being said, uh, um, you know, Satan is the one that tempts. He's the one behind sin, if you want to say it that way. Sin leads to Satan has the power over all those things. But even in all that, Christ always intercepts his people. Old covenant, new covenant, before the law, all that. Um, and so I think it's just stating a fact that at the cross, Jesus Christ uh, gained victory or or, or completed the work that gives victory. And I think that's, that's pretty much just what that verse is, is talking about. Yeah, good question. Any other questions? If you want to know more about this, you know, again, even, even other viewpoints, like I said, these are great books over here uh, that, that, that talk about it. But um, anyway. All right, let me pray for us.